Welcome to the Well Community Jokes. The movie The Princess Bride is filled with some epic scenes, but there's none better than the chatty fencing duel between Inigo Montoya and the man in black on top of the cliffs of insanity. And as you know, if you've seen the movie, uh, I'm assuming we've all seen the movie, spoiler alert if, if you haven't, it's 1987, so I think we have some time. But Inigo Montoya dedicated 20 years of his life to studying swordplay to avenge the death of his father. But as he duels the man in black among the ruins of the castle, it suddenly dawns on him that he's underestimated the skills of his opponent. And there's a moment near the end of the fight where the man in black switches his sword from his left hand to his right hand, does this aerobatic flip and lands perfectly on his feet. And then Inigo says, who are you? And the man in black answers, no one of consequence. And Inigo says, I must know. And the man in black replies, get used to disappointment. Fast forward 34 years, and this quote still rings true. Get used to disappointment. When I look back over the last year and a half, we've all had to get used to one disappointment after another. And just when we thought we were getting out of one season, we were back in a lockdown for another. And like Inigo Montoya, we started lockdowns thinking that this would be over quickly. But like the man in black, this pandemic has been deceptively skilled at disrupting our expectations. Which has left us wrestling with this tension of getting used to disappointment, getting used to discouragement, getting used to the feeling of sadness and displeasure caused by non-fulfillment of one's hopes or expectations or a loss of confidence and enthusiasm. But as you know, disappointment and discouragement are not new inventions. In fact, we have an ancient book that's filled with stories of people who have had to deal with disappointments and setbacks and discouragements time and time again. And to learn how we can process a little better with God's help, the inevitable discouragements that come our way, I'm going to invite you to turn with me to the book of Nehemiah tonight as we continue our rebuild series. And tonight's message is called Dealing with Discouragement. So a quick recap of the last two weeks. We began this series by looking at how Nehemiah puts first things first. And upon hearing the devastating news about his people, about his homeland, Jerusalem, he goes to God in prayer before he does anything else, before he takes action. And then last week, after Nehemiah had spent months in prayer, we saw how he finally took action call God's people to come together to start rebuilding the walls of Jerusalem, and how by coming together, they weren't just rebuilding the walls, but God began restoring their hearts. So the book of Nehemiah is very relevant, I believe, to our lives today and our current situation. Nehemiah knew that he and God's people needed to rebuild their relationship with God by rebuilding their priorities around the things that God values. And that's a relevant challenge for us today. How's your relationship with God? What do you need to rebuild or reprioritize in order to restore your relationship with him? 
Life is filled with these ebbs and flows and ups and downs, but we have to keep coming back and centering ourselves around Jesus. So back to the situation at hand in Nehemiah, the people of Jerusalem listen to Nehemiah and they start rebuilding the city's walls and hope is on the horizon as they see everyone coming together and the people are working together, they're excited, they're seeing progress, things are starting to take shape. And one thing I just want to go back to that I didn't bring up last week was in chapter three, we kind of went, we flew a little bit higher than normal. We didn't get caught up in some of the details of the rebuilding, but this I think is significant. The beginning of chapter three starts with the rebuilding of the sheep gate and the ending of chapter three concludes with the rebuilding of the sheep gate. And it kind of shows us this full circle picture of everyone coming together. But what's so significant about the sheep gate is that this is the place that was close to the temple where sheep were kept waiting to be sacrificed. So Nehemiah, by putting this first, is saying, put God first. Again, this is all about putting God first in our life. And he's saying, hey, it starts with the sheep gate and it ends with the sheep gate because we're not just rebuilding the walls of Jerusalem. We're restoring our relationship with God. But then we get to chapter four and something derails them. And I'm afraid it's something that has the potential to give us trouble also. And here's what it is. It's discouragement. So let's read. I'll be reading in Nehemiah 4, starting in verse 1, and here's what it says. When Sanballat heard that we were rebuilding the wall, he became furious. He mocked the Jews before his colleagues and the powerful men of Samaria and said, what are these pathetic Jews doing? Can they restore it by themselves? Will they offer sacrifices? Will they ever finish it? Can they bring these burnt stones back to life from the mounds of rubble? Then Tobiah the Ammonite, who was beside him, said, Indeed, even if a fox climbed up with their building, he would break down their stone wall. These guys are mad. Sanballat and Tobiah. Now, Tobiah, we're not quite sure who he is. He might have been a foreign official, but Sanballat was the governor of Samaria, and he opposed Nehemiah because Jerusalem and Judah had previously been under his jurisdiction. But now he's received a letter, the king's orders, that Nehemiah is allowed to go about and start rebuilding the city. So they decide to use one of their oldest tricks in the book. They decide to use a barrage of words to attack morale. More or less, the insults are giving off a sense of what are you going to do? Pray up the wall? And that last line about if, if a fox climbed up, what they're building, that it would break it, that, that was kind of like their zinger of the day. Like. But it's interesting to note how some of these same dynamics and tactics are taking place in the church today. And not just here at the well, I'm talking about all over the country. People are using a barrage of words to attack morale. Now, they might not be saying them to you directly, but think about the amount of words and information you absorb and consume every time you go on social media and the news feeds. 
This is why I've shared in many of my online messages, I've had to keep removing these apps from my phone. I would try adding them again, and Amanda would notice right away because there was just something that was bringing me down. She would pick up on a heaviness, and my insecurities would start coming out. People are using words to express their views on pro-vaccine and anti-vaccine and pro-mandates and anti-mandates and churches should remain open to everyone and churches should be closed while we're still battling the fourth wave and so on. So what can we learn from Nehemiah to help us battle discouragement? Well, first, name your discouragement. Name what you're facing and what you're feeling and carrying Nehemiah again underscores the centrality and effectiveness of prayer as he names his discouragement. Verses 4 to 6 say, Listen, our God, for we are despised. Make their insults return on their own heads. Let them be taken as plunder to a land of captivity. Don't cover their guilt or let their sin be erased from your sight because they have angered the builders. Again, Nehemiah is putting first things first. He prays. But what's interesting is that this time, it's not a personal prayer. He's actually leading a communal prayer, saying, listen, our God, not my God, for we are despised. So now another thing to note is that Nehemiah isn't calling down eternal damnation here. He's simply saying, don't let this injustice go unnoticed. Don't let them get away with what they're doing. They're not just insulting us, they're insulting you, God. So verse 6 goes on and says, So we rebuilt the wall until the entire wall was joined together up to half its height, for the people had the will to keep working. They named what was in front of them, and they asked God for help, enabling them to continue on. And an old pastor of mine once told me that stress, and in this case, disappointment and discouragement, is the difference between your expectations and reality. And whatever that difference is, is how much stress or discouragement or disappointment you have. The greater the the gap, the, the more you'll feel it. The greater the difference, the greater the discouragement. So for example, we thought that COVID would last a few weeks, And then the reality is that we're still in this a year and a half later. And for me, my gap's pretty large because I thought July 2020, we'd be back in here. Or perhaps when we started off planting this church, you start thinking that, man, we're going to reach this community of young kids and families, and and we're going to be at a thousand in five years, and we're getting to the four-year mark, and we're like, okay, we're not quite at a thousand, But Tim Keller, a pastor of an influential church in New York City, he noticed that after 9-11, a significant number of people weren't doing well. And in fact, there was a high number of people leaving the city and leaving the ministry, and the dropout level was alarming. And the reason that he gave for this problem is that most people in New York City had not allowed themselves the time and space necessary to process the pain the trauma, the disappointment that took place during their lives throughout and after 9-11. And Keller uses that experience to suggest that we're not going to see the cost and the result of this current pandemic now or even soon. 
He says we're going to see it in the future. And that's why it's so important to admit and to, adna- and to name as soon as possible that this has been hard on us, that we're discouraged, that we have disappointments to process, perhaps losses to sit with that life has thrown our way, loss of opportunities, jobs, visits with family members, family get-togethers. Christmas was weird having the family drop gifts on the front porch and then you go home and watch each other on Zoom open them. There's been a loss of peace. The constant ups and downs are tiring. They're burning us out. Even just the news, navigating that and watching it day after day. And those who are on the front lines, who are working with the public, they're they're being harassed and they're being attacked in some cases. There's loss of relationships. People have found that There's no middle ground anymore. That if you don't agree exactly with someone, well, you're canceled. You can't be friends anymore. And if you want an encouraging message on that, I spoke on coming back to the table throughout the summer. I think I called that one, Oh, for the Love, because I was just getting so frustrated. Come back to the table. But what I love is that Nehemiah gives us the blueprint for dealing with discouragement. The first thing we ought to do is name our discouragements before God. Nehemiah again shows us to look to God, not to ourselves, for strength, even for vindication, and the courage to go on. Well, this infuriated the officials. So verse 8 says, they all plotted together to come and fight Jerusalem and throw it into confusion. So the officials now are thinking, well, if the barrage of words won't discourage them, then let's try another tactic. Let's get ready to fight and throw them into confusion. But Nehemiah demonstrates that we need to stay focused. Verse 9 reads, So we prayed to our God and we stationed a guard because of them day and night. So Nehemiah's spiritual stamina and his determination are now being matched by his courage to confront the immediate and serious physical threats against them. So Sanballat is prepared to escalate the conflict to an armed confrontation in order to prevent the Jews from achieving their goal. But I love what Nehemiah does again. He prays and he acts. This simultaneous thing. It's similar to when he asked the king in chapter 2. The king asked him, what do you want? And it says that he prayed to God and he answered the king. And again, we have he prays to God and he stationed a guard. This man lived a life of prayer, but also a life of action. And I just love seeing how grounded this man is in prayer and in his relationship with God. It's like, how does he do it? It's because he's staying focused on what matters. He's focused on God and the mission that God has called him to. Stationing a guard doesn't diminish his faith. It doesn't diminish his trust in God. I believe it actually reflects his faith. Trusting that the work he's doing is actually the work that God's called him to. Stationing a guard is simply a precaution that allows him to stay focused on the mission at hand. It reflects this partnership between heaven and earth. It reflects trust and good management. So are you focused on where God's placed you 
and what he's calling you into. And if you're not sure, I'd suggest spending some time alone with him, asking him, talk to him, listen to him. And a bit of a side note on hearing God, if you've ever wondered, how do you hear God's voice? Well, for me, it's usually this strong gut sense. I, I feel it within my spirit. And I get this sense of what I need to say or what I need to do, steps I need to take. But I don't just listen to that because it might just have been the Big Mac I had earlier in the day. I also hold it up against scripture. I, I hold it up with community and I invite others to speak into it. And I listen to what they're saying. And Does it line up? Is it matching the character of God? But back to Nehemiah. The next few verses go on to talk about how Nehemiah stationed people by families and at vulnerable areas around the wall. And then he stood up and said in verse 14, don't be afraid of them. Remember the great and awe-inspiring Lord and fight for your countrymen, your sons and daughters, your wives and homes. Now, it's important to recognize here, he's not saying to fight in the name of God but he's reminding them that there's a bigger story at work. And Nehemiah reminds us to remember God's promises. Don't be afraid. Remember. Remember who you are. Remember who you serve. Trust in God's past record. Theologian Derek Kidner says, Nehemiah's appeal shows a fine recognition of the vertical and the horizontal planes of life. The Lord as ever is the first reality for Nehemiah. But he is well aware that earthly ties and simple loyalties are also integral to human life and character. Nehemiah is realizing that the enthusiasm is waned. People are tired and they feel with good reason that the project just cannot be completed. Reliable intelligence is suggesting an imminent surprise attack is expected. But by calling them to remember and fight, Nehemiah not only averts a serious physical threat to the work, but also motivates the community to return to their work despite the logistical difficulties. So whatever it is you're facing, remember and hold on to God's promises. His promises are solid. We've seen them fulfilled in our lives and throughout history. But they have not yet been fulfilled fully. We live in this now but not yet kingdom of God. There's still more to be done. God is at work reconciling, renewing, restoring all things everywhere. But our hope is seen most fully in Revelation, the last book of our Bible, chapters 21 and 22 where it says, Jesus will wipe away every tear from our eyes. Death will be no more. Grief, crying, and pain will be no more. We'll get to live with him, wrapped in glory forever and ever. So we have to stay focused and keep our eyes on that promise and not let go if we're going to be strong and get to work and not be afraid. Dealing with our discouragement in a helpful way requires us to cling to the promises of God. 
And lastly, Nehemiah reminds us that we need to continue to come together and choose to worship. God is at work and God's will will be done, but he invites you and me to participate with him in the ongoing work in the world. So in Nehemiah verses 19 and 20, Nehemiah says, the work is enormous and spread out and we're separated far from one another along the wall. Wherever you hear the trumpet sound, rally to us there. Our God will fight for us. In other words, we need each other. We need to come together and we need to stand strong together. But we also need to decide who we're going to worship, who we're going to follow in this life, because everyone worships someone or something. It's just a matter of what or who. And for those of us who choose to worship and follow Jesus, we need to continue to come together to encourage one another. I was telling Eugene and Rona just before the service started that I am loving being able to gather together in person. And I know not everyone's able to be here, and, but it just fills me with so much joy and hope because for a year and a half, I was in my kitchen by myself wondering if you guys were even paying attention or listening or what God was doing. There's an importance in coming together and being connected with one another in person and even online. I, I'm encouraged by the emails and messages I get where we can follow Jesus together. And back when I was a kid, I'd go up north to my family's cottage in the summer, and I'd be off playing with my friends, and the way my parents would call my brother and me in for dinner is my dad would actually go to the front porch, and he was a trumpet player, and he would play his trumpet, and we'd be like, oh man, we gotta go, and we'd race back before dinner got cold. And that's kind of what's happening here. It's a rallying cry. Nehemiah is saying, when you hear the trumpet, we need you back here. We need to face what's coming together for strength and to know that we're not alone. And even as I was thinking of this, I was picturing the old school churches with the giant bell, the ba-bong, ba-bong, and I'm like, wouldn't that be great? Most of Binbrook would kill us, but a rallying cry to say, we need you here. We're meeting to encourage and equip one another to follow Jesus. So when you see the notification that our service is starting, that's kind of our rallying cry now. Your phone's like, boop, oh, service is starting soon. We need you here, and we need you engaged to encourage one another, to stand strong together, and to reach our community for the glory of God. So I'm so excited that our worship team tonight is leading us in the song, I Choose to Worship, because life is hard. There are great seasons and there are seasons of great discouragement. But that's when it's even more important that we come together and we choose to worship. So friends, are you dealing these days with discouragement? If so, name it. But then stay focused and fix your eyes on Jesus, the author and finisher of our faith, and remember that his promises are secure and come together and worship.
So will you choose to worship him tonight and for the rest of your life? Because it's the best decision that you will ever make. So as I wrap up, I'm going to invite you to respond to the message by participating in communion. That you're invited to the Lord's table. You're invited to have a relationship with Jesus. And communion is an act of remembrance, which helps you become present to his presence among us. And while we used to have an actual table up here that we would invite you to come to, now you have prepackaged cups waiting for you on your seat. There's a wafer in the top and the juice underneath. But by choosing to participate in this, you're proclaiming the Lord's death until he comes again. So after I pray and during our next song, as you take out the wafer and eat it, remember that this is Christ's body given for you. And then as you open the cup and as you drink it, remember that this is the new covenant made in the blood of Jesus Christ because of his love for you. Do this in remembrance of him. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, I cannot thank you enough for your love. And for anyone here tonight who is wrestling with a spirit of discouragement, I pray that you meet with them right where they are. God, help them to name what it is they're, they're discouraged by. Help them to, to admit it. And God, I pray that you just take that off their shoulders, take it from them, and wrap your loving arms around them. And may they feel your presence. God, as we participate in communion, we do this to remember your sacrifice. To remember your body given for us and this new covenant in your blood that restores the relationship that we have with you. Father, thank you for your love and for the hope that we have in you. We ask all of this in Jesus' name, amen.